Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. I apologize, have not been able to get any new episodes out over the past month, month and a half. Our season started and playing games every day and with travel, so I do apologize about that. For those who don't know, I'm a hitting coach in the Baltimore Orioles organization. I'm currently the hitting coach for the Delmarva Shorebirds, which is our low-A affiliate. Been a great season so far. We've had a lot of success early on, so hopefully we can keep that going. I've already been able to move a few players are um, up to high A, so it's been it's been fun. Met some great people, learned a lot of new things. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been a really great experience. But looking forward every every Tuesday from here on out, we will have a new episode. Um, starting today, which is Dr. Michael Gervais, who is a high-performance psychologist, and he's the host of Finding Mastery podcast. He is one of the most sought-after high-performance coaches on the planet. He's worked with Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks for the past eight years, Olympic medalists, UFC fighters, Major League Baseball players, and coaches from every sport. Dr. Gervais has been featured in NBC, ABC, Fox, ESPN, ESPN Magazine, we are extremely grateful to be able to sit down and talk with Dr. Gervais, who's worked with so many athletes and has, has such a, a great career in the high-performance field. In this episode, we talk about how to help athletes, how to help athletes deal with failure specifically in baseball, and then we also talk about the exact process that Dr. Gervais uses when he's working with someone. So he takes us through a, a step-by-step process of how he would go about working with someone and then just kind of some ways to um, to help that person once you figure out what's going on. So this is a, if you're a coach out there, I don't even care if it's in baseball, I would highly, highly re- recommend listening to this because uh, there isn't enough resources out there that can help our players when it comes to the mental side of the game and, and, and how to help them just because um, – Everyone wants us to always talk about mechanics, and, and that's awesome. Like I'm guilty of that too, but this is extremely important, and it really can, t- can help a player out and take their game from one level to the next. So I appreciate everyone who, who's been reaching out and wanting, wanting new episodes, and um, I apologize I wasn't able to deliver, but from here on out, every Tuesday we'll be back to, to regular. So appreciate it. If you haven't, make sure to go subscribe on iTunes. And I uh, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Michael Gervais. All right, Dr. Gervais, appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. I oh, appreciate being here. Thanks for including me. So I, you know, I've been doing a doing my homework, uh, you know, listening to a lot of a lot of your uh, content you put out, you know, watching a lot of videos, and if I know uh, some people who listen to this, I'm sure have heard of you, but if for those of the who haven't, like, can you give everyone just a, a brief background on yourself and and just kind of how you got to where you're at? <laughs> it's a kind way of saying. Um, you know, and give me a compliment, so thank you. But uh, yeah, so by trade and training. I'm a sport and performance psychologist, and I'm classically trained in psychology with an emphasis in you know the performing uh, aspects of being human. And I've been fortunate enough to cut my teeth in really high-pressured, high-stakes, rugged, and consequential environments. And so I left traditional stick-and-ball sport 
early out of my graduate training to go get into environments where consequences were so real that when people made mistakes, um, it was so severe that it required an absolute pure commitment to getting it right, whatever it was. And I can put some more meat on that bone in a second. And, and then after I left those environments, um, I found myself back into stick and ball sport. And so the last nine years I've been with the CX, um, worked fortunate enough to work across a couple Olympics. And then uh, prior to that, in the middle chunk of my career is where I spent a bunch of time with those, you know, very frontier pushing thin herd type men and women who are charging at the, the edges of human potential in those consequential environments. Gotcha. What are there? I know you've worked with athletes and, and people in all aspects of life and in different sports. Is there a particular, uh, you know, sport that is it's harder to work with that particular athlete? I guess maybe in baseball, have you or is there something like that that you've noticed? You know, I, I haven't been. That's a good question. I haven't been asked that in a long time. And I know that. Um, I think what's happening, if I can just pause for a minute, and I'll definitely give you a really concrete answer, but here's some context. Let's call it first year that I was working with um, in the NFL on the selection part, when I was interviewing potential candidates for our club, I would ask about the mental part of the game or psychology. And they say, oh yeah, you know, it's important and it's a separator and, you know, yeah, it's important but they didn't really know the language of it. Now, a decade later, the same crew of people coming in, so they're you know, potential candidates for the club, it's the kind of, we're selecting them for, for, to be a rookie. And that class of kids now are going, oh yeah, mental training, sports psychology, yeah. Oh yeah, okay, so uh, this is me talking now. So like, what have you been doing? Well, we do a bunch of imagery, we've been doing some meditation at our, at our college, um, we're definitely, you know, making sure that we've got our pre-performance routines locked in. Um, you know, we've been, done some work on breathing. I'm like, okay. So, so in a decade's time, it's gone from, oh, the mental part of the game is important to, I'd say probably let's call it 50% of the incoming, uh, um, rookies know what it is and have actually done some work in it. Now, is it to the level that we would hope? for deep proficiency in the psychology of excellence? No, but they're more sophisticated. So to answer your question, so I'm just giving you some context over what I've seen in the last 10 years. Now, prior to that, so let's go 20 years ago, when I was asked that question, it was so crystal clear to me that um, the people that ran to try to get a deeper understanding of the psychology of flourishing, the psychology of like high performance or potential or fill in the blank, whatever adjective there, this stuff, right. That we're talking about. It was the, I did a bunch of work with cage fighters and they kind of couldn't get enough of it because they knew that when the cage door closed and there's 20,000 fans that wanted to see, you know, gladiator type experience. And when that cage door closes, there's another skilled human across the cage with just their hands, their head and their feet. And it's, you know, an ultimate test. And so they were not going to leave the mental skills or mental part of it up to chance. And so they would, they were really hungry to, to double down on it. Gymnasts were the other group that were really hungry for it, oddly enough, and then action sport athletes. And so the action sport athletes are those that I was mentioning earlier, where 
you know, if you are the first person to want or to have the ability to do something that nobody else has ever done, and let's just use skiing, for example, you're looking down a 60 foot spine in the back country. It's just you and three other people. You've been scoping this thing out for a long time and you're sitting up there and your legs are shaking and, um, deep resources have been committed to get you there. And you've got the technical skills, the physical skills, but you don't have the mental skills in place. And if you make a mistake, somebody could be packing your stuff out, you know, and delivering a note to your loved one. And I don't want to be dramatic and I don't want to be glib because um, real stuff happens back there. And I'm just using this as a placeholder to say those folks in those environments, they would run to it like, okay, uh, the consequences are real. So I, I need to get real. And then if you flip it over to, you know, your beloved sport, um, I don't want to say the consequences aren't real, but they're materially different. They're not physical consequences. So there's a little bit more slop in the system when it comes to the requirement of mandating precision, you know, where the environment mandates precision or something dramatic happens. So in traditional stick and spalls, stick and ball sport, there's a little bit more flexibility. So it's not lost on me that it is one of the last capabilities that have come online into professional sport in a sophisticated way. So we got, you know, we, the progressive coaches got SNC on board pretty early. They, they got the ATC PT model, you know, worked out, let's call it, you know, 20, 30 years ago that we got um, nutrition is leveling up at some level now. And then the progressive coaches that have those three in place, as well as a refinement of technical skills, you know, all that stuff, strategy and technical skills. The progressive coaches are going, hey, how do we get better at the mental part of the game? And it's not rah-rah, you know, motivation stuff. It's not that. It's like hard, thoughtful, evidence-based training, you know, and I'll be damned if like, we don't see it in the next, let's call it five years where it's woven into the fabric of daily training. It's not there yet. You know, it's, and uh, I'm happy to expound more on it, but I've got this clock running in my head that I'm talking too much already. So no, you're, it's great. <laughs> no, I can I'll, pa you. I can... I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, this is, this is great. That I didn't even really think about the other sports and how it could be, you know, your life is at stake. It's a, that's a great point. I, I guess sometimes I'm just in my own little circle of just baseball, but let's say, for example, you know, you, you, you have one of those athletes that do come running to you and like, they want everything they want. Like they're, they're all in. Do you have a, a is there a process by which like you put them through or is it, it's a case by case sport by sport scenario. Yeah, it's a cool thought. I'm like you, most of the folks that we spend time with, they are the half percenters. And so there's no cookie cut, cookie cutter approach that we can possibly employ with somebody who has broken all the molds. And there are though, that being said, there are a handful of principles that we will walk through to see how short up those principles are. And then we customize it for that human. So I'm happy to walk through that as a general approach, but also I want to say that there is room for a standardized, uh, let's call it education meets um, 
skill development practices. Like there is a standardized approach that we can walk through, but for the half percenters, it's, you know, we'll lose them right out the gate because it needs to be customized to their unique psychology and their unique needs. But um, so usually do you want me to kind of just go through maybe a model approach? Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you've, you've got a high performance model that you're working from Patrick, right? Like, you know, um, back a napkin, high performance models, if you've got a handful of capabilities that you've identified are important to help that athlete build, you know? And so if the athletes at the center of the model, there's psychology, physiology, technique, nutrition, SNC, and, you know, we can go all the way around medical equipment, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the kind of easiest place to start is when you sit down with an athlete or a group of athletes or a group of coaches or coach individually, and you say, right, let's just do an, a basic assessment. Like, where are you one to 10 on each one of these variables? And then we find, we find like, where there's an opportunity and an interest to grow in. And we dive into that as a basic high performance model. And when we get to the psychology piece, there's all these sub capabilities and I'll describe the five that I find to be most meaningful. And then we start to just rate and score and get an assessment back a napkin assessment as a place to generate some heat, generate some interest, generate like, where's the opportunity to go deeper. And it's built that just general approach is built on an assumption. And that assumption is that everything a person needs is already inside them. They've already figured out at, at the level of performers we're talking about, they, they already know how to absolutely get free when there's pressure in the environment. They know how to dissolve pressure. They know what it takes to be at their very best consistently, but there's something that's kind of getting in the way of it. It might be you know, they're, they're struggling with the skill, or it might be some noise in the environment that they're having a difficult time managing, like family relationships or whatever, you know? So, so here's the five factors and these five factors, um, you know, the mind is a ecosystem. The human body is a beautiful ecosystem. So I don't want to simplify anything into five factors. It's not ever going to be that clean. But the first main factor is self-discovery. And so we start there usually because once you know who you are, Patrick, nobody can take that shit away from you. And those humans that can drop their hips, square their shoulders up, look down the barrel, look somebody straight in the eyes and say, hey, listen, I know who I am. And I love the opportunity right now to test myself. And they, they have that ability to be in the present moment when it's hard and scratchy and irritating and difficult. And, you know, there's, there's that stuff, that cortisol in the environment that they're able to kind of be about it. So self-discovery is the first process. What are your first principles in life? What is your purpose? You know, how do you think about your purpose? Um, what are the character strengths that matter most to you that you want to make sure you're leaving those as part of the, the breadcrumbs of who you are as a human? What are those attributes that, you know, values, if you will? And what does the future look like when you really get quiet? Like, you know, what is, these are all very, I'm, sounds like I'm rattling them off, but these are actually part of the process that I walk people through. What is the vision? Let's use our imagination to create that, that future state that is, um, inspiring, you know, for you. 
And then we define like, what does a high-performing life look like? So all of that goes into a very thoughtful process. And that's pillar one, self-discovery. The second pillar is mental skills, because once you know who you are, then we need mental skills to be about it consistently. So it's one thing to put the words on paper. It's another thing to rehearse and memorize those words. It's a totally another thing to be about it when, you know, your old operating system um, brings a lot of pressure into environments. So we got to upgrade the, the operating system with the self-discovery work, upgrade the operating system, your operating system with mental skills. What does that mean? Confidence is a trainable skill. Being calm is a trainable skill. Focusing deeply in the present moment is a trainable skill. Knowing how to trust yourself is a trainable skill. And I'll tell you a funny story. Like, well, I'll actually leave it up to you to decide if it's you know funny <laughs> or not. I think it's funny, but I'm a I'm a nerd, you know, so it doesn't go, it doesn't go a long way here. Um, I was working with a, a cage fighter, and uh, funny aside is or in, an aside that is important to me is that I've been fortunate enough to be in the corner for three different championship fights. Wow! And so is it? Yeah, it was it like, you know, you and I are fortunate enough to be you know, adjacent to the extraordinaries, you know, these men, women, and humans that are doing amazing things. And very, very rarely are we this close to it. And so I was like, it was, it was, it was an honor. So anyways, we're doing some work and I say, um, where's confidence come from for you? You know? And he goes, uh, you know, and he starts kind of going on about it a little bit and he's confident. He's definitely got it in place. So I was curiously asking, where's it come from for you? And then um, I said, what's it sound like in your head when, you know, you're in that sweet spot? Now it's, this is him. He's, a, let's see, he's probably 5'11", 235 pounds, 8% body fat, you know, like a, he's just a, I mean, MMA and mixed martial arts, they're real athletes, you know, it's a combination of all the sweet science that you could imagine. And, and he looks at me and he says, um, there's nothing. When it's good to be me, nothing's going on. It's pure. Now he doesn't know the science of flow state. He doesn't know what he, he knows the zone, but he's not using that language. He's just like, it's pure. Okay, cool. I said, so underneath that, when it's really good to be you, but you're not in that kind of sweet flow state spot. He goes, Oh yeah. He goes, it's pretty simple. He goes, it's just loud that I'm a tough motherfucker. <laughs> go, okay. So I play along. I go, can you back it up? And he looks at me kind of cockeyed and he says, um, yeah, I whooped my dad's ass when I was 14. I'm a tough fill in the blank. I go, okay, you back, you back it up again. And he goes, yeah. You know, he's got a little disdain to him. And you know, he's like, yeah, my last fight, you know, I was in an end game position. I broke it. I put my, I put the dude on my back, drag him, drag, dragged him across the, the cage, dumped him, finished the fight. Dude, I'm telling you, that's what it's about. So I, Press my luck. And I said, you know, back it up again. And he goes, you know, if someone were to ask me one more question, I might just choke him out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I said, okay. I said, you know, good. Then that's why like a psychologist, they teach you to um, always have your back to the door. And so, um, so you can, <laughs> so you can leave, you know, <laughs> that's great. That is awesome. So, um, that's awesome. So, but, but there's a materially important point here, right? Which is that confidence is trainable with sets and reps. 
just like you train sets and reps for technical skills, just like you train sets and reps for physical skills, calm, confidence, focus, deep, trust, all of those are sets and reps. So what gets people confused about psychology is do we, there's this thought that we're going to sit in a room and have a kumbaya, doe-eyed, let's cry together. It, that's, leave that for the TV, you know, to kind of shape that. That's not what it is. And so, um, anyways, those are two of the five. I don't, I don't know if you want to go any further on, on other factors, but, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I liked how you brought up the, the flow state and, you know, with that fighter. In baseball, for example, you know, you succeed, everyone says three out of ten times, you know, you're going to be successful, at least the, at the major league level. And a lot of times when you ask players, you know, when you're doing, when you're going good, like, what are you feeling? Like nothing. And, but yet when you go bad, it's like, I feel everything mechanically going wrong. I, I don't pick up the ball well. So it's, it comes down to how can we help them get back into that flow state when they are struggling? Because, because failure is built into the game. Like you cannot avoid it. I know maybe there's like boxers or, you know, who are undefeated out there or, you know, or basketball, even you, they succeed majority of the time, but in baseball, it's just, I can go see the best player in the world and he fail every time the entire game. You know, Patrick, I, I, I hear it and I go, I think that the the model, the, the, the mental or psychological model is the reason that we have such a hard time in baseball with like wanting to help people embrace failure is because the model's wrong. Nobody, these are, we're talking about humans, you included, you don't want to fail. So we're trying to help people swallow this idea of failure. And I think it's broken. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's the right way to move forward. And by the way, good and bad, failure and success are black and white types of thinking. And flow state doesn't work well with black and white thinking. Mm-hmm the triggers and the promotion of flow state. And just to reference, so we're on the same page, flow state is a scientific term that captures this experience of being completely absorbed in the present moment. And there's high flow and there's low flow. And there's ways that we can promote flow. There's psychological skills that we can use to promote flow. But black and white thinking, good and bad, judgment-based, critical-based thinking is a exit door out of it. So it keeps us away from it. Success and failure. So, hey, you're going you're gonna to fail you know, seven out of 10 times, but we want to help you deal with failure. I don't think that that's how, I don't want to swallow that pill personally. Mm-hmm. And um, what the pill I want to swallow is um, how can I sustain the right type of mindset to grow, to get better, to grow, to get better? And so what I need is the right approach, psychological approach, and the right feedback loops. And so, and and if I can get those two in place and then not be burdened by the number one fear for most humans in modern times, the number one fear is not the saber tooth. It's not, you know, the dark alley for for most people, although there are predators in our world, um, real predators. But for most people, the most dangerous thing is what people might think of them. And so I need a mechanism. Again, this mental model is not about dealing with failure, but it's about being, a cons- being in a consistent frame of mind to learn, grow, adapt, learn, grow, adapt, have feedback loops to do that and deal with this thing, this real feel- fear that tightens me up, which is what will happen if I don't perform well? 
So that's failure is, I, I'm going to maybe put it on its head for a minute. Failure is the inability or, or unwillingness to go for it. Mm. So failure is the tightening up and not being able or willing to give it a go. So information that comes back is gold, whether I don't go for it or not, whether I swing high, low, whether I can't get the ball out of my hands, yips, whatever we can get into. There's, But we're looking to create a new model, which is what are the right feedback loops so that you can learn, grow, adapt, learn, grow, adapt at the fastest rate possible. And so the way I think about failure is I don't want to help people um, get better at failure. I want them to feel the pain of failure and failure is the unwillingness or inability to go for it. Now, when you get information that you're too slow or too fast, or you're too anxious or you're too da, 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 da. Okay. If you're hesitating too much. Okay. Let's use that information to grow, pivot, you know, like, so I don't know. I, I hope I'm not speaking esoterically, but um, I see it as information. And if we can't use information well, then we're probably not going to be on any tor- sort of accelerated clip towards mastery, towards consistent high performance, towards frequencies of flow state being increased. So I see it as information, and then it's up to us to deal with the truth of the information. You know, great- I, I bet I bet you don't sugarcoat stuff, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, that's that's a very very good point, and I, I like how you put that. Of, it's not black and white because you're right. It, there there's a lot more that that does go into it, and yeah. um, you know, I I, I, th- I one of the things I, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about too because you know athletes do struggle, and as coaches, we obviously want to help them, whether it be even on or off the field. And so I was re- I'm reading this book right now called Chatter. And, you know, they talked about co-rumination on there. And I wanted to ask you about that because in it, it talks about how you, you, I'm sure you, you understand this way better than I do, because I'm just reading the book now, but it, it talks about essentially how you don't want to talk about out loud some of your failures. Am I saying that right? And how like that is, that may not actually be the best way to deal with your problems. Yeah. So I had Eric Cross on my podcast as well, um, the, the author of Chatter. And um, he's great, you know. And so, okay, so let's talk about let's talk about the language, like saying out loud your failures. But I want to go back and just sharpen the framework that failures are the inability or unwillingness to go for it. If we can, if we grok at that at some kind of level, talking out loud about my fears is actually can be healthy but ruminating on them. So getting stuck and having that be a narrative that is a consistent external or internal dialect monologue is problematic. So our brains actually love stories because a big healthy part of our brain is trying to make meaning of the world and stories are a mechanism to make sense of things. And so if I'm talking out loud, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a big moment. No, strike that. I'll tell you an important moment for me. <laughs> um, is that I, I was struggling in college and I, I didn't know it, but I had anxiety. I, I, did, I had no idea what this field of psychology was really about. And, but I was really connected to the psychology professor. And I went up to him because I just loved what he was talking about. I didn't, I didn't have a major declared or anything like that. 
And I, I went up to him, Dr. Cusio, and I go, Doc, um, do you have a few minutes before class? He goes, yeah, Mike, let's walk. And so I'm, I'm kind of shaking, you know, like, cause I'm nervous to talk to him. I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm also struggling. And so, uh, we take about four paces and he says, uh, what's going on? I said, well, and he couldn't hear it right from the get, you know, I said, ah, I'm just having a hard time. Like I'm, I'm struggling in this relationship and it's hard to keep my head above water. You know, um, surfing was my first sport. And so, you know, I'm not able to kind of do the thing in surfing right now. Cause I got this school thing. Like I'm just upside down and, and he go, and he looks at me and before I could go any further, cause I was going to get into the story of it about, you know, some stuff. And he said, he stopped me and he, and kind of squares up my shoulders. And he says, um, when somebody knocks on your door, do you have to answer it? And then he walked off. Like he purposely left me there. And I was like, psychologists are flipping weird. What the hell is that? Like, that was rude. And like, who does he think, you know, and like, I'm in this narrative. Right. And so, um, I'll make this sh short here is that I didn't know what to make of that. I saw him two days later. Cause it was like a Monday, Wednesday class. I saw him two days later and I was waiting for him. And I was like, Hey doc, can I, can I, can I talk to you? And, and, and he goes, yeah, Mike, let, let's, let's walk. I said, Hey, I tried. I think we misfired. Um, but I, I really need some help here. And he goes, okay, go ahead. And so I started with almost the same freaking story, almost exactly because I had this thing rehearsed. It was like I was becoming professional at this narrative of being overwhelmed because I was feeling overwhelmed. So I needed, I, I was rehearsing it, not to talk to him about it, but make, trying to make sense of it. And I'm thinking about failure and I'm thinking about thinking about thinking about, and it's driving me crazy. So I start with almost the same thing. And he stops me almost at the same place. He says, when somebody calls your phone, do you have to pick it up? This is before we had cell phones. And he looked at me and I was like, son of a bitch, this weirdo, what are we doing? But now I understand it. He was interrupting the narrative. Mm. I was externalizing. I was internalizing. I was ruminating, to Eric's point, a story about being overwhelmed. And I was finding real evidence about it. And in the most abrupt way, he got right in there and altered it. So one of the great things we can do, Patrick, is listen to people for sure but not listen in a way that allows them to groove this track, to deepen the groove of the track. And so um, chatter is a long way of me saying that we all have chatter and we're trying to sort out how to, how to be okay in a modern world with an ancient brain, with artificial pressures. Sport is full of artificial pressures, right? We made up the rules, you know? So we're trying to figure out this ancient brain you know, how to be okay in modern times with artificial rules. And really the thing we're most afraid of is uh, not being good enough. Getting kicked out of the tribe, being humiliated, you know, FOPO, fear of people's opinions is, is the big constrictor of potential. And once we get free from that, Patrick, like once we kind of figure out how to undo that, holy shit, it's a whole different way of like, you know, you just get a little zest and a little pop and like just a whole different way of engaging. It changes the way you think about success and failure. It changes the way you think about information. It changes the relationship you have with yourself and other ones and others as well. And I, I would assume that to, to get to that point, you have to do some, you have to do a lot of work. And I would yeah. also assume that it could also be 
I mean, I'm sure your parents have something to do with that too. Maybe potentially how you're raised. I mean, I've even looked into ancestor DNA. I mean, could it be like, how deep can we, could it really be? Uh, I mean, it's deep now. Yeah. You got, yeah. You got to do some work and independent of where you fall on the spectrum of this stuff. Um, there's still room. To, there's a lot of room to grow. You know, some people come into this world with more cortical arousal, more brainstem and spinal cord activation. You know, they, some of us have a problem with the vagus nerve, you know, like the vagus nerve is that the, the break, if you will, to the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response. And that break or that moderating part of our nervous system isn't quite equipped right. So we end up feeling really nervous a lot, you know, very, very anxious. Well, there's ways to get better at it. And so, um, I don't know, I love, my purpose in life is to help people live in the present moment more often. Because that is where, in the most mechanical sense, it's where high performance is expressed. It's where wisdom is revealed, but it's also where all the beautiful and amazing and true experiences in life take place. So like our job, I think as humans is to get in the present moment as often as we possibly can, because the present moment is also the entryway into flow state. Mm. You know, we're so busy, Patrick. We're so busy, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear it. I, I really resonate with uh, the story you told about yourself and professor, because I, I, I completely agree how our brain can just, you could just, you just take images and then words, and then it puts them together when it, there's real no meaning, you know, the thoughts are just thoughts sometimes and until we, unless we like really put them together. So I, that definitely makes sense to me. Yeah. Definitely. Um, one of the other things I, I wanted to, to bring up and ask you about, cause I, I'm fascinated by it and maybe, maybe it does kind of, maybe what we've talked about leads up into it a little bit because you, you do see it in baseball is the Ips. I know you see it in, in golf a little bit too and some other sports, but uh, you know, I've definitely seen it in baseball. Um, I wouldn't say a decent amount, but you just, God, I feel so bad for the people who have to deal with it, especially when it's on the biggest stage. It, I mean, is what we're talking about with the taking images and words and putting them together and, and telling ourselves stories. Is that what it leads to like worst case scenario, the yips? Yeah. Yips are brutal, aren't they? Oh, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know anyone really that has like this, the steps to solve yips. Yeah. It's not yeah. crisp. You know, I think uh, my understanding is that it's, it's pretty well mapped to obsessive compulsive looping. And so there's a loop that is taken over. And even though like it doesn't make conscious sense, there's some protection mechanisms uh, that are looping underneath that make it nearly impossible to um, execute freely. So there's a lot of noise and, and um, uh, chunkiness in the movements. And so it's, it's, it's mapped on OCD and a little bit of like post-traumatic stuff. Mm. And I think if you're going to go for it in life, you know, you know you're going to find some places that it hasn't worked out and it's going to shake you a bit if you really go for it. Some people think they go for it, but they're really just working to play it safe and it works out okay for them, but they really never really, really, really go for it, including some professional athletes. They're just so flipping talented, you know? Um, but anyways, I, I, I wish I had a X number of steps to deal with the yips. Um, 
but I will agree with you that it's, that's a hard one now. Can do I, And I also think that we can get ahead of it. You know, we can get ahead of maybe preventing yips, but it's a whole different game because I don't know anyone that says, Hey, I want to do this work to prevent me from getting yips one day that no one, no one ever says that. So it's like, that's not a, I don't know. That's not really a line of thinking that I've ever heard. So well, you, you, in general, you have to be a very disciplined, self-motivating athlete or person to want to get ahead on this kind of stuff because uh, it's invisible, right? You can't really, I mean, the, the mind and the brain, you know, if you work out or whatever, like you can see those results right away and everyone else can see them too. But it, to work out your mind, I mean, you, you may be are preparing for something that you don't know when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen, but you, but by having that discipline in place, like you're now going to have the confidence if it does come up to be able to deal with it. And I, I, I just think that's so crucial. And I agree with what you said earlier. I think in the next three to five years, uh, this stuff, it, it's going to be everywhere. You're not going to be able to every organization, at least MLB is already starting to, to get on board with it. And it's just going to go deeper and deeper. I don't know what it, what it's like in the other sports. I know, uh, you know, you're, you know, you're with the, the Seahawks and Pete Carroll, and he was obviously very progressive. And one of the you know reasons why he's such a good coach and, and someone that I've, every time I hear him speak, I'm ready to run through a wall. I mean, it's, it's honestly unbelievable, but um, this stuff, it, it's going to have, it's going to be everywhere because I think it's the next, it, it is the competitive advantage, I think for athletes. Um, would you, I like, guess, is that fair to say that, at maybe football or just maybe certain teams in football, like it's been there for a few years and now everyone else is catching up. Yeah. I think each club is going to be on their own unique adventure into competitive, you know, like competitive advantages. Some will get there earlier than others, depending on leadership and depending on the, the athletes raising their hand and saying, Hey, listen, there's two things I want to make sure that are clear for me. One, this is the athlete speaking, not me. And it has to come from high talent usually, or high influence people to say that well-being, like psychological well-being, we're not going to compromise that shit anymore. Like there's, because let's call it 15, 18 years ago, you know, this was thrown around all the time, almost like a badge of honor that wellness begins or wellness ends where high performance begins. So we need the extraordinaries and they're doing it right now. The, the high talents, the high influencers are saying, no, the mind matters. And hey, go go f yourself if you think that I'm going to sacrifice my well-being for a little bit more money and a little bit more fame. And there are plenty that are willing to play play that trade, you know. But not until like the really deep ones that say no, no, no. We need a base, and watch what happens to our competitive advantage when we have a sturdy base that we're working from. We're going to be so much more free. We're going to be, have so much more fun. We're going to have, we're going to get greater return. And that was the experiment the last nine years at the Seahawks was, you know, can we put that base in place? And it wasn't like, Hey, go talk to Mike over there in, in a couch, in a poorly lit room, you know, tabooed. It wasn't that it was, you know, coach Carroll created psychology, um, as part of the ecosystem. And that's, that was where I love doing scalable work. And so to your point is that once the extraordinaries raise their hand, yes, let's get the well-being, psychological well-being in place, but the same skills that allow for psychological well-being are the same exact mental skills 
for sustaining high performance. There's no separate bag. You know, this bag's for that. And this, you know, it's, they're the same skills. When that takes place, it's a massive competitive advantage. And maybe more so, we end up just fucking having a lot more fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. So, yeah. And, and um, I love what you said about it's invisible. I nod my head. It is invisible, just like gravity is invisible. Mm-hmm. You can't see gravity, but you know its effects. You know the downstream impact from gravity. And same true for you and me right now. Your mind is invisible, but you know if you're grounded or anxious or rattled or whatever. And you know if you your mind has choked off. No athletes choke. You know, no one's eating. Where'd the video go? No, no one's eating um, when they're playing. Right. Right. And so you you've got, you know, all figured out. I obviously you're still working really hard, but you know yourself very well, which I think, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, is extremely important. So like, what do you do on a a regular basis to really make sure that you're in a good, solid place to help other people? Yeah, cool thought is that the one is I've got to make I've made a commitment to myself to be about it. And if I'm really going to do the work um, with people that are uh, smart, progressive, hungry, you know, what I have to do is create a deep enough container that we can go somewhere because if they want to go somewhere real and I'm scared to go there, that's not going to work. So I've got to do the, I've got to do the work on myself. And so that's one. Um, And I'll explain what that means in a second. And then the other is like, I'm, really interested in impact at scale. And so I'm not spending a whole lot of time with individuals. I have one, maybe two clients a month. And I, I see them one full day for the month. And so it's, you know, an eight hour long, intense day, setting us up for a month of work, but it's one full day together. And so everything else I'm doing, I'm trying to do at scale, like across culture, inside of organizations, or, um, you know, providing solutions at scale, whether it's in business or in our sport. So the first thing to be about it is that I've got a simple little morning mindset routine to kind of wake my body up and my mind. And it's four steps. I'll explain that. And then I'm also making sure that I'm finding the right time to exercise, to eat right, to hydrate, to sleep really well, um, to get my mindfulness practice in, uh, you know, to train optimism to find what's good rather than let my brain find all the things that are threat, you know? Um, And then I, I'm, I'm a systems thinker. So I put in the right systems to be able to move at scale for concrete solutions. Right. And the whole thing is wrapped in my purpose, which is to help people live in the present moment more often at scale. And so if we can help an organization, one in five people in the organization, create that critical mass, if you will, of having a good, powerful ability from a psychological perspective, we found that it's like a rolling stone where the rest of the organization, you create that flywheel effect. So we're looking to get change for one in five people in the organization, you know? So the morning mindset training sheets are still on, you know, and instead of just letting my body wake up and me run into the stress of the world, um, I'm going to wake my mind up. So it's super simple. It's one breath. And that wakes up a circuitry in the brain that like, okay, we're here, we're in control and we're safe. A long exhale sends a signal to the brain that we're safe. 
And if I do two, three, four, five in a row, a little bit better, but I make a commitment to do one. Long exhale is really what that's about. And the second is one thought of gratitude. So that opens up a related circuitry that actually there's a lot of good. So it's not just that we're safe, but there's a lot of good. So I'm training and strengthening that part of my neural networks. The third is a clear intention. And so an intention is something where um, I'm using my imagination to see and feel how I want to be later that day. Okay. And then, so those three happen while the sheets are still on. Then the fourth thing I do is I take the sheets off and I take a moment to practice being present. And so it's just my mind and my body being in the same place for just a moment. And that's the practice of being present. So I primed for breathing, gratitude, and a little, little hit of imagery on the intention piece and then presence. And I do those four things. It takes anywhere between 60 seconds to six minutes if I want it to. And that's how I start my days. And it's a super clear grounding mechanism that um, I can't imagine too many people wouldn't be interested in. Well, I think everyone should be doing that. And I like how it's not 40 minutes long too. That's what I think everyone should be able to to do exactly what you just described because it is, it's quick. Oh, I love that. That's, I'm going to start honestly doing, implementing that uh, tomorrow when I wake up. I call it, Um, I call it morning mindset training. It's super simple. I like it. I like it. Cool. Cool. Um, well, I appreciate you coming on. This has been a lot of fun. I know you're extremely busy and, uh, you know, I've been listening to your podcast, finding mastery um, uh, where, where, like if someone wanted to like follow you, like where's the best place to, um, to find you. I know we'll, we'll put the, your podcast link in the show notes, but where would be, is it Twitter? Like what, 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 uh, social media sites do they go to? Podcast is definitely okay. you know the most frequent and I'm on all the social handles. It's at Michael Gervais, and that's spelled G-E-R-V-A-I-S. Michael is exactly how it sounds. Uh, Michael Gervais on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. But I think that the podcast is the is probably the most meaningful place. And then um, I wrote a book with Coach Carroll, and that's called Compete to Create. And so it's an Audible original, so that's fun. And then um, also built an online course, which is a eight week training. You can do it in shorter if you wanted, but it's a X number of week training to pull back the curtain and show you exactly how um, we've spent time with elite athletes, how you too, you know, outside of the, uh, the actual um, sport world can do it. And so it, I mean, I think it's my best work. It's solid and it's, it's just scratching the surface, but um, I'm super honored to, to share that with you too. Awesome. Michael, appreciate you coming on. I really do. Oh, thank you, brother. Appreciate you.